Do you know an undiscovered musician who deserves a break? Well, we have an idea for them. NPR Music is holding a tiny desk contest to find one great unsigned musician to play the iconic Tiny Desk concert series and tour the United States with NPR Music, which wow. is insane That's and nuts. sounds amazing. Gene, yes. are we going to start a band? Yes. I'm, I claim the triangle, though. Dibs. Bongos for me. Your house the bongos. <laughs> <laughs> All you have to do is shoot a video of your musical act playing an original song behind a desk and submit it, or on a desk like I just did, and submit it by January 29th. Learn more at npr.org slash contest. What's good, y'all? This is Code Switch, Obama's Racial Legacy. Part two. Electric, electric boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what that is, Google it. I'm Shri Marisol Maraji. And I'm Gene Demby. We've been talking about the racial legacy of Barack Obama's presidency the last couple episodes. Yep. Last week, we looked at the way race has shaped the criticism of President Obama during his time in the White House. And right before we were scheduled to drop part two of the podcast, Gene, President Obama went and messed up our process by giving his farewell address last night. Yeah, he went home to Chicago, his adopted hometown, you know, safe harbor for him. And speaking of Chicago, I have to say, the best part of the speech, in my opinion, was when mm-hmm. he shouted out Michelle. He got all code switchy. He was like, Michelle LaVon Robinson, the girl from the <laughs> South Side. Anyway, I watched that again this morning because I, I, I love that part. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was under the feelings, you know. It made me all... a little emotional. Yeah, even uh, Malia <laughs> was like in her feelings a little bit. She was crying a little bit. Um Anyway, let's listen to a clip of that address real quick. If I had told you eight years ago that America would reverse a great recession, reboot our auto industry, and unleash the longest stretch of job creation in our history, if I had told you that we would open up a new chapter with the Cuban people, shut down Iran's nuclear weapons program without firing a shot, take out the mastermind of 9-11. If I had told you that we would win marriage equality and secure the right to health insurance for another 20 million of our fellow citizens, If I had told you all that, you might have said our sights were set a little too high. But that's what we did. That's what you did. President Obama there defending his administration's record, touting Mm -hmm. his many, many successes. But on today's episode, we're asking a different question. Where did President Obama fail to get the job done for people of color? And so we asked three super smart people to weigh in. And just so you know, we talked to them before President Obama's address on Tuesday. Our first guest is Carla Shedd. She wrote the book Unequal City, Race, Schools, and Perceptions of Injustice. She's also, importantly, an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at Columbia University. Carla thinks one way President Obama failed to make things better for African-Americans was with his education policies. And according to Carla, those failed policies hurt poor kids, especially hard, those whom she calls the most vulnerable among us. And Shireen, you know, I was curious, you know, when we talked to Carla, I wanted to know if so much of education policy is handled at the state level and at the local level, why point the finger at President Obama? 
as a sociologist who studies Chicago and with him being a politician who calls Chicago his hometown, I mean, that was his staging ground. That was the first place where he got to see how institutions were working or not working. And so as senator and then as president, if you take the person who is in charge of Chicago public schools and things are not going well, and then you install them as the secretary of education, and I'm talking about Arne Duncan, Duncan. then you've done something where you've moved what is state-level policy to federal policy, to national policy, to ill effect, I believe, if you look at what happened on the ground in Chicago and how things were getting worse in terms of segregation and in terms of inequality under Arne Duncan. Can you talk specifically about what you think Arne Duncan did wrong in Chicago that led to increased segregation in schools and public schools there? I think some of the same successes that he would tout as saying, oh, you know, we've got an accountability and we're standardizing the curriculum and we're making sure teachers are being evaluated by the work they're doing and their students' outcomes. And so these exact same measures could be an indicator of you know, things that are not going so well. So if you're using test scores to determine whether or not you'll close a school, there's so much more in terms of an input into what will shape young people's test scores that we're ignoring. And so how can you use that as the measure by which you determine policy that will close schools, devastate neighborhoods, send children across the city in a way that may make them more exposed to danger or subject them to inequality? And that's what I cover in my my book, Unequal City, is that it's the school systems that sorted people across Chicago for good or for worse. Um, so Arne Duncan is emblematic of someone who took perhaps state failures and was able to install them to a larger degree on the national stage. And Obama, you know, brought him to that stage. A lot of his rhetoric was around helping the most vulnerable children in the public school system, African-American and Latino children. I don't know. Are we just having this conversation about good intentions gone wrong? Did he put, you know, the most vulnerable communities at the center of his policy? And unfortunately, what I'm hearing you say is that policy didn't work. I mean, there are great paradoxes and I think different interpretations. So we can make race to the top as an improvement on no child left behind. But we just said that race to the top is the the Obama administration's policy by which they gave these big block grants (laughs) to all these states um, and said, these are some metrics we want you to hit. Um, And it was a way that they sort of had held out a carrot for states to sort of get in line with what the White House wanted them to do. Okay, sorry. That was the explanatory comment. Thank you. So when we did that, you know, you had the opening of choice, and I say choice in quotes, where, you know, you increase the charter schools and, you know, these other programs that are not necessarily proven, but our young people become the guinea pigs for these experiments. And some of them do well. We hear about the success of Urban Prep, the all-boys charter school, 100%, Uh, you know, um, college admission. Mission rates, but we d- can we talk about <laughs> urban prep for a second? Every year we hear about this school in Chicago yes. and how all their seniors go to college, and what they don't tell you is that 
that senior class is the only a fraction of the class that started as freshmen. Right. And, uh, was, uh, there's a much more complicated story there. But it's always held up as like this victory in educating black boys who are most vulnerable. Uh, anyway, And that's the problem with looking at outputs. So, you know, if we look at only the graduates, we don't see the processes that got them mm-hmm. into the school and through the, you know, ninth grade through 12th grade and what happens to them after they graduate. So the incoming administration, the Trump administration, um, Trump has tapped uh, Betsy DeVos as his education secretary. And she has this long track record of giving tons and tons of money to charter schools, which is like a very, very controversial subject among lots of civil rights groups. The Movement for Black Lives came out with a statement in which they called for a moratorium on the creation of more charter schools. The NWCP came out um, at, at calling for a pause in that as well. I'm curious, as though, to what extent you think Barack Obama and Arnie Duncan laid the groundwork for the expansion of charter schools. They definitely opened the door. I mean, prior to the early 2000s, um, Chicago didn't have any charter schools. And so there, I mean, the numbers were very, very low. And it's in the 2000s when Arne Duncan is CEO that we saw the expansion and we saw this sort of marketing of these schools coming up as, oh, we're expanding the options and we're providing more choice. And what people saw was just the you know, replacement of funds that could have gone to their neighborhood schools that will go to these charter networks that were unproven and many times had worse outcomes if we were to look at test scores or disciplinary outcomes of the young people in the schools as a metric of how they were doing. And so you now have neighborhoods that don't have a neighborhood school. It's not just Chicago, but it's just this opening to where we're thinking about market-driven solutions to what should be so social institutions that have public goods and public services that should serve everyone. But wasn't the intention to give everyone a better opportunity? Wasn't the intention to push for more integration, you know, to bus kids into um, neighborhoods where the schools have more funding, for example? Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is, oh, no, no, no. It led to the exact opposite of that. And why? Why did that happen? I mean, we tried this with Brown v. Board, where we saw schools as this opening for changing a very stagnant and racist society. And so, you know, this idea that you sit children from different races next to one another and they all would benefit said something. But there's an additional burden on the kid who realizes, hey, I can't get the same thing where I live. I have to go somewhere else, to someone else's neighborhood, and to someone else's school. And so it gives them a greater currency in that they learn to code switch. They learn to navigate between different worlds, and they gain greater capital. But it also tells them something about the diminished value in you know, what their neighborhood is and what their institutions are like in their neighborhoods. And we would see a decline that then can't be accounted for. Everyone can't be bussed out. It's not an even exchange. We see that that doesn't work. So why do we keep moving forward with these policies of where we're telling people to be more mobile, but we're not giving everyone that opportunity for social mobility? What makes a conversation like this so frustrating, at least for me, is that we don't have hours and hours to talk about these issues. So we're like steering you to talk about 
one particular issue. Carla Shedd, like, talk about education. When you just said, like, there's layers of entrenched problems that are going on here, you know, criminal justice, housing segregation, education. How do we disentangle those from one another and say, President Obama, you should have focused on this? (laughs) I think of Trayvon Martin as an important person in this conversation because his death and his killing, you know, speaks to Obama getting more disses, as you talked about in part one, from people saying, oh, how could he bring up Trayvon Martin and, you know, say that could have been his son. But the other part of this is Trayvon was suspended from school, and that's why he was in Sanford, Florida. Anyway, he was suspended for having a trace of marijuana in his book bag. And so there are the education policies that mesh Mm. with criminal justice policies that make it so that he's in a neighborhood where he's deemed suspicious and out of place. And so, you know, his death being the spark for the Dream Defenders and the Movement for Black Lives and and much else, I think, um, makes it so that Obama could come back to that moment and say, what are we doing in our schools that would make it so that Trayvon would even be suspended for that? Um, There are other moments where we can think about the mobilization of you know, people around this idea that young black boys are deemed suspicious no matter what they're doing. And Obama is then focusing on the back end of, you know, these federal clemencies that he's granting, um, releasing people on nonviolent drug offense um, sentences that they've been serving. And so I'm like, why are you working on the back end? We could change the policies that make it so that people are suspended or placed in jail in the beginning. You know, Obama can do all he wants in terms of granting, you know, commutations and the most of any president in recent history. But it's a drop in the bucket if we're talking about what's happening in our local jails, in our state prisons. That's where the action is and that's where things have to change. But we have to stem the flow of people into those spaces, too. Is there anything positive we can say about the Obama administration and Ed policy. Is there any way he interrupted any of these things? I mean, there was this great moment in social science where after his election, you know, many social psychologists were like, oh, yes, there'll be this Obama effect. And our, you know, black boys in particular will realize that, hey, they can even be president. Hey, this is possible. And so the kind of symbolic nature of um, his presidency, I think, was very powerful. Um, but it also didn't change the reality of a lot of the same people who wanted to sort of talk about his trajectory and how it differed greatly from their own, but they still have great aspirations. And so those who do make it out become exceptions when we should talk about how we make success the rule. And so how we do that is we change structures. We look at institutional inequality. We don't sort of talk about the promise of individuals and the intentions of individuals. But I'm a sociologist, so <laughs> there's a bias there. Yourself. That's yes. what you're supposed to say. <laughs> yeah. Carla, we want to thank you for coming to Code Switch and talking mm-hmm. to us about all this. It's depressing and bracing, but obviously very, very necessary. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Carla Shedd is an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at Columbia University. Her book is called Unequal City, Race, Schools, and Perceptions of Injustice. Thank you again. Thanks, Carla. Thank you, Shereen. Now, Mr. Demby. Yes, ma'am. We got to remind folks that part two of 
our three-part series on President Obama's racial legacy, mm-hmm. our opinions we solicited from three people about ways President Obama failed to make things better for their communities. Right. Um, these are three very smart and very engaged people, but they're just three people. <laughs> oh, uh, we know some of you are shaking your heads right now as you listen to this. You know, it's like, no, President Obama didn't do enough about the wealth gap, but we could have done more about criminal justice reform. And, you know, we want to hear from you. So tweet at us. We're at NPR Code Switch. I'm at Radio Mirage. Radio, you guys know how to spell that. And then M-I-R-A-G-E, like a mirage. And I'm GD215. That's G-E-E-D-E-E-215. Can you give me one second? Sorry. Um, I got to put some gloves on. My hands are freezing. One second. Sorry, guys. Of sure, course. yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's our next guest, Simon Moya-Smith. He's a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation and culture editor of Indian Country Today. Simon, welcome to Code Switch. Thanks for having me. Where are we talking to you from? So I'm on the road right now. I'm trying to head to D.C. So I was going to cover the district during the inauguration, not exactly the inauguration, just kind of mm-hmm. take the temperature of the place. Wait, where are you coming from? I'm coming from Denver, so I think I'm in... Is this Kansas, Nebraska? I'm trying to look at the license plates. I think I'm in (laughs) Minnesota. I think I am. I saw a Minnesota plate. I don't know. Simon, I hope you are in a warm place. No, it's negative six. Are you in your car right now, like pulled over? No, I'm out. I'm outside. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, let's do this. You've written lately about policing and how more Native Americans have been killed by the police or at the hands of the police per capita than any other racial or ethnic group. And this is something you actually wanted to discuss with us for this series on President Obama's Mm -hmm. legacy. And we were wondering, where does President Obama play into this issue for you? Well, he's talked about police brutality, but he hasn't included Native Americans in that discussion. When he does talk about racism in policing, he talks about black people and brown people, which is mm-hmm. egregious when you when you look at the numbers, the statistics that say that Native Americans are more likely to die at the hands of police. And at the same time, our numbers of, of Native Americans are killed by police increased while the number of African Americans and, and Latinos killed by police have decreased. But also, you know, other we're at the top and the bottom of a lot of America's social statistic, the most uh, Native American women are more likely to be sexually assaulted. But people aren't talking about that. We suffer the highest levels of, of poverty. And again, we're excluded from those conversations. And I think that that's what it comes down to, is including us in the national conversation on all of these subjects, but including police brutality. That's the problem there. Why, why can't people include the Native American, the First Nations, on that topic? Is there some policy reason or some larger social reason that you think the number of Native Americans who are being killed at the hands of the police has gone up in recent years? You know, to be honest, the dehumanization of Native Americans continues in this country. I mean, how can people take us seriously as people when we're still mascots, right? I mean, the name of the Washington football team means proof of Indian kill. The idea of Native Americans as mascots makes us hostile. So when people approach, especially police approach Native Americans, their first idea is of a hostile person. We need people first to recognize that we're human, that we're your neighbors, but also that we're not hostile. We're not how we're portrayed on TV, and we're certainly not these uh, aggressive figures that you see in media and in sports. How would you describe President Obama's legacy when it comes to Native issues outside of, you know, policing slash Native Lives Matter? I think he's been, you know, one of the most involved, right, was the fourth 
president to ever visit a Native American reservation, but he did disappoint a lot of Native Americans when it came to the situation at Standing Rock, the Ocheti Shakoe camp, the Dakota Access Pipeline. It took people literally sacrificing their bodies for the Obama administration to take action. And that was the very same reservation that he visited. He visited Standing Rock, but yet it took people hmm. getting hit by water cannons and freezing temperatures, people getting arrested, dogs being released onto them for, for the Obama administration to, to do anything. And I think that bothered a lot of Native Americans, and I think that will be a stain on his legacy for the indigenous peoples, because he said he wanted to protect treaties. Well, that's treaty-protected territory, and yet the Dakota Access Pipeline is still not dead. But there has been a halt on it, right? There's been a halt, but it's, again, it's ephemeral, it's temporary, so it's not dead. And so, so this is not enough. The fact that the Army Corps of Engineers denied an easement, that's not enough. No, the treaty rights need to be upheld. The treaties signed with Native Americans need to be respected, just like the treaties signed with countries across an ocean. Just because we don't have armies doesn't mean you could violate our treaties. So is part of what the disappointment of Obama is that uh, he was going to be more outspoken in defense of these treaties and more outspoken in, in terms of tribal rights? We had hoped, yeah. Again, that goes back to the Dakota Access Pipeline. We had hoped that he would have acted a lot quicker than that and not, as he said, let things play out for a couple of weeks because in those weeks people got hurt. And that was just people trying to protect their land, protect mm -hmm. the children, protect the water. So how would you rate his legacy? I wouldn't give him the greatest rating as an indigenous man because of all the indigenous people that he has deported. Because remember, I am an Oglala Lakota, but I'm also Chicano. My family's from East Los Angeles, so I'm, I'm an indigenous man. And we know that he's deported more indigenous people than any other president. And he was the one that he said he was going to look into, you know, immigration reform and et cetera. No, he sent people, he sent indigenous people south. So he doesn't have the greatest legacy with the Latinos, uh, with the indigenous peoples in that sense. So, again, that's why I can't give him the greatest rating across the board. That was Simon Moya-Smith of Indian Country Today. Our next guest is going to pick up that thread on Obama and immigration. Today, our immigration system is broken and everybody knows it. That's President Obama on November 20th of 2014. After the break, we're going to talk with the head of a prominent Latino organization about how President Obama didn't do enough to fix that broken system. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash codeswitch. All right, Shireen, you know, listening to the news all week is a duty and an obligation of citizenship. And I'm not just saying that because we're journalists. Uh, I take it very seriously. I know you do. But, you know, sometimes it's really a pain. But wait, wait, don't tell me. The NPR News Quiz is like, you know, aspirin for the aching mind. And, you know, there's more. The weekend of January 14th, Tom Hanks is guest hosting. What? Right? Celebrity status. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me with special guest host Tom Hanks of Forrest Gump, of Sully. Bosom Buddies. <laughs> I'm aging <laughs> on, myself. <laughs> on the NPR One app at npr.org slash podcast. And now back to our conversation on Obama's racial legacy. Real quick, we wanted to find some terms here. 
DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which granted relief from deportations to people who were brought to the U.S. when they were children. FYI, the cutoff is before your 16th birthday. And DAPA is Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents. It was supposed to do a lot of the same things that DACA did, but for people whose children are citizens or lawful permanent residents. All right, let's go. We're here with Janet Murguia. She's president of the National Council of La Raza. Thank you so much for being with us on Code Switch. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. So you made headlines after giving a speech in March of 2014 to the organization that you lead where you said, For us, this president has been the deporter in chief. Any day now, any day now, this administration will reach the two million mark for deportations. It's a staggering number that far outstrips any of his predecessors and leaves behind it a wake of devastation for families across America. So, Janet, I know you feel like the media didn't give enough context in all of its various, you know, Janet Murguia calls President Obama the deporter in chief headlines. So um, now's your chance. Give us the full context for that statement. What was going on at that time in government that made you say that? I was responding to Speaker John Boehner's ludicrous and patently false uh, excuse uh, for not moving comprehensive immigration reform uh, in the House at that time. Mm -hmm. The excuse being that President Obama was refusing to enforce the law. Well, that is an absurd statement, given that the reality is that at that point, President Obama had deported more people faster than any other administration. Mm -hmm. And there are some who will quibble with the numbers, but there's no doubt that the president enforced the law vigorously, and the proof is also in the pain, suffering, and the anxiety it caused the immigrant and Latino communities. So in the final ledger, how do you grade President Obama on issues of immigration. I mean, on one hand, you have the executive actions, but also you do have these millions of people who are uh, deported. Yeah, I think there's a few different ways to look at this. And one way is to say that, one, we should recognize that President Obama could not do this alone, you know, despite his best efforts. The leadership in Congress is most responsible uh, for the lack of action, ultimately, on immigration reform. Mm -hmm. And we should make no bones about that. I think it's fair to say, though, that his legacy will be a mixed bag of sorts, Mm -hmm. particularly on immigration. I think it will reflect a a contradictory mix of policies, some aimed at bringing immigrants out of the shadows, others at removing them uh, from the U.S. Comprehensive immigration reform did not have the benefit, like the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare Act did, of a democratically held, uh, controlled House and Senate. I think for us, the president made this political calculation that he had to win Republican support by first showing that he was serious about enforcing the law. Mm -hmm. Right. And Janet, you're on record saying President Obama you know, that was a failing tactic, you know, mm-hmm. being tough on illegal immigrants in order to play ball with these recalcitrant Republicans and mm-hmm. to get them to the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you rather him do? The fact is, is we don't blame him for the Republican response 
which was intransigence and uh, highly personal opposition <laughs> to any Obama priority. But we do fault uh, the administration for not recognizing this intransigence much earlier and for not having an adequate plan B. And an adequate plan B could have been pursuing administrative relief actions sooner, mm -hmm. including the prosecutorial discretion policy, as well as the DACA mm -hmm. and the DAPA proposals. Could you explain the prosecutorial discretion and how it worked? Sure. There is a uh, sense that enforcement actions are applied equally, and that's what I think everyone imagines. That's, we know that's not true. <laughs> but but what happens is that when you're on the enforcement side, you have restrictions based on financial resources right. and staffing resources so that you can't possibly be enforcing all the laws at any given time across the board. You have to prioritize. That's correct. And so the idea is a simple one. It's to target <laughs> those folks who would do us harm and who are a higher threat to our security and use those resources that are precious judiciously and have an official directive and a policy memo that would provide that guidance to federal immigration law enforcement uh, agencies. So what, what was the political calculus for not doing that in 2010, 2009? Yeah, I think, again, you know, Nobody knows for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were other priorities, but I think on the immigration front, there's some that argue that the administration believed that it could engage Republicans sure. for bipartisan support by actually showing that they were being tough on enforcement and by upping deportations, and that that would be an incentive for Republicans then to give the administration and the president credit and sit down at the table and then resolve, address some sort of an immigration reform bill. But they never acknowledged that. Right. You know, listening to you, I was thinking about, you know, DACA, DAPA, this prosecutorial executive action that you're talking about. They are all Band-Aids, right? And what you ultimately wanted was comprehensive immigration reform. And I'm wondering, would there have been an executive action, something radical that the president could have done to really push the Republicans to the table, in your opinion? Something that, that I mean, to keep with the metaphor, would pull off the Band-Aid and, and just <laughs> and, and, and get the thing done. I don't know if it would have been radical, but uh, moving forward with these administrative uh, relief options sooner could have actually, some argue, have mobilized Republicans to react and mm -hmm. say, you know what, we don't want him just doing this uh, administratively. Let's sit down and let's figure out a way where we can actually, you know, put more of our viewpoints on what this immigration policy should look like and not just let him act in an authoritative way. Right, Let's yeah. put a check on it. Mm -hmm. And that that could have actually driven, some argue, more Republicans. Obviously, some Republicans were saying that if he acted in any administrative way, they weren't going to engage. Hmm. But, yeah. you know, when you ask them, OK, what has to happen to get immigration reform? Their first response traditionally has always been, once we secure the border, we'll then work on immigration reform. But when you ask them, okay, what will it take to secure the border? So what does that look like? What does that look like? You never got a specific answer. You never could nail down what they would define 
as securing the border because in their minds, I'm not sure you could ever do enough to secure their border. Or at least they left that impression that there wasn't ever a hardcore plan that would allow for us to then be able to move on and say, the border's secure, now let's move on. Mm -hmm. So we never felt like we could get an answer without that goalpost being moved further and further away. Sure. But at the end of the day, this was really for us, I want to be really clear, Mm -hmm. a moral argument. Right. A humanitarian argument. It's about people. It's about people and separations of families and suffering and trauma among these children who were affected by this. And if we couldn't get the right political calculation, we felt like we had to argue from a humanitarian and moral perspective the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we felt that we had to pursue the administrative relief options because we weren't certain about what politically was ever going to incentivize the Republicans to come to the table. Right. So what do you want President Obama to do, if anything, before he leaves office? Oh, I'm not sure that there's much more he can do. I know there are some um, groups who feel that he should somehow pardon the Dreamers. I think there's an illogical legal argument around that, and you do want to try to base a lot of this on legal arguments. Sure. That even if he pardoned them, that would not give them relief. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that the, the clock is running out, and I'm not sure that there's much more in a very big or substantive way that can be done. So, Janet, we've been fairly critical here about um, President Obama's legacy around immigration policy and what he didn't do um, to pass through comprehensive immigration reform. But I know that um, there are things that President Obama did that were positive for the Latino communities that you represent. What is something that you're really proud of him for accomplishing? Sure. Look, we know that immigration is important to Latinos, but not just Latinos, but I think to everyone in this country. We've seen what the effects of a broken immigration system can have for us in terms of the impacts, not just on our economy, but on people's lives. So it is important to talk about immigration and the Obama legacy, Mm -hmm. but We also should recognize that Latinos, like others, are not just one-issue constituencies. You know, I think when you look at the Affordable Care Act, you know, prior to the Obama administration, Hispanics, you know, had the highest rate of uninsured of any group. And there are now over 4 million Latinos with insurance and nearly 9 million Latinos who have added benefits from the Affordable Care Act. Additionally, the uninsured rate uh, has gone from one in three for Latinos to one in four in just a couple of years. That's a huge gain for us. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the establishment of the um, CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Board, what people may not recognize is that Hispanics were very hard hit by the recession. Right. You know, we lost 66% of our wealth, mostly due to foreclosures, many of them needless. Establishing a consumer watchdog is incredibly helpful and is now helping uh, to get Latinos out of the economic hole they were in and protect them in the future from unscrupulous practices. But probably the most significant is uh, and was the appointment 
of the first Hispanic ever to the United States Supreme Court. Justice Sotomayor. This was a milestone. (laughs) Sure, we had a shout her out. (laughs) This was a a milestone that resonated deeply within and across the Latino community. You know, Justice Sonia Sotomayor may just be his greatest and unquestionably lasting legacy with the Latino community. And I say lasting because last I checked, there's no ability for this next president to go back and take anybody off the Supreme Court. <laughs> he may be able to add others, but, you know, he can't undo that appointment like he's trying to undo Affordable Care Act or any of these other things. I mean, she is going to be a testament to so many Latinos who have high aspirations and giving us a sense that we can achieve all things and finally have that representation on the highest court of the land. I feel like we should leave it on a high note. <laughs> what do you think, Gene? I like that. I like that. You want to leave it on a Puerto Rican. That's uh, of course. We have to end on, on all things Boricua. Janet Murguia is the president of the National Council of La Raza. Thank you so much, Janet. Thank you all. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you all today. All right, y'all. That is our show. And we really want to hear from you this week. Where do you think President Obama fell short on issues related to people of color and issues of race more broadly? You can holler at us at CodeSwitch at NPR.org or on Twitter at NPR CodeSwitch. And Gene, if we get some good tweets, we'd mm-hmm. love to share them on our next episode, Indeed. the final conversation in our three-part series on President Obama's racial legacy next week. Yep, we're going to be getting our synthesis on, wrapping it all up. <laughs> wrapping it all up, wrapping it. And we had original music by Romteen Arab Louie. As always, a shout-out to the rest of the Code Switch team, Adrian Florido, Karen Grisby-Bates, and Kat Chow. Our editors are Netta Ulabi and Keith Woods. We're back next week, and don't forget, subscribe to our podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. I'm Shereen Marisol Maraji. And I'm Gene Demby. Be easy. Peace.